At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to them, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, I guess I finally got somewhat of an easier sermon text. That is, if you think that stories about beheadings are easy reading. Over the past month or so, if you've been following along with us, you'll know that we've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew, and we just got done looking at how Jesus was teaching a crowd in parables. And after he got done teaching this crowd in parables, he turned to his disciples and he explained those parables. And then he told his disciples to treasure these things in their own hearts and then to turn around and teach others. Then last week we saw how Jesus was rejected in in his hometown of Nazareth precisely because of the familiarity that people had with him. And this week, we are going to see how Jesus is received and even rejected by those who are in high places and positions of authority and influence and power over others. And the main thing that we're going to see from this text this morning is that it is utter foolishness to reject, to resist the reign of Jesus in our lives and in our hearts. And we're also going to see that it is only when we have our fulfillment in Jesus, in his fame, that we can truly be free. And so to help us see that this morning, we'll look at three things. The fame of Jesus, the foolishness of resistance, and the fulfillment that frees us. So as you look at the Gospel of Matthew here, in chapter 14, you'll see that Matthew tells us that the first thing that we encounter here is the fame of Jesus. Matthew tells us that at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. This is the the news, the report, the growing celebrity of Jesus that Matthew has been chronicling for us throughout his whole gospel. And in specific, Matthew has been telling us about uh, both the scope and the character of the spread of Jesus' fame. For instance, in chapter 2, 
Matthew tells us about how pagan, non-believing, uh, magi, astrologers, uh, wise men came from the east and that they traveled hundreds of miles and for months on end because they had heard of a boy who was prophesied to become king. And so they traveled all that way to come and pay homage to him. They had heard of his fame. Then in, in chapter 4, Matthew tells us that just as Jesus was starting his ministry in Galilee, that he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And what resulted, so his fame spread throughout all Syria. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Then in chapter 9, Matthew shows us how Jesus heals a, a ruler's young daughter and, and raises her from the dead and how the report of this spread throughout all of that district. And in the same way, he tells us how Jesus recovers the sight of two blind men and how he even warns these men to not tell anybody what he had done for them. But instead of listening to Jesus, they went and spread his fame throughout all the district. So the fame of Jesus was, it was traveling through centuries by, in, in the form of prophecies. It was crossing cultural and national borders. It was saturating every town and city and region and district that Jesus went through, so much so that he was, he was surrounded by crowds wherever he went. But what's really interesting about Jesus' fame is not just the international scope and the broad scope of his fame, the spread of his fame, it's also the character of the spread of Jesus' fame. You see, because the spread of Jesus' fame happened in the most unassuming and in the humblest of ways. Because Jesus didn't come into a town and stand on the, the street corner and say, I am God the Son incarnate, look how important I am. Instead, he would go from town to town, reversing the effects of the curse in people's lives. So, so whatever was disjointed or perverted in, in people's hearts caused by sin, he would put back in order, he would restore it to its original wholeness, beauty, and order. In the wholeness, beauty, and order that God had intended for it. He would bring order out of the chaos caused by people's, both by people's personal sin that came up from out of their hearts and also by the effects of sin that, uh, for, uh, over which they had no control, such as disease or afflictions of different types. So what this shows us about Jesus' fame is it, it was beginning the process of restoring and redeeming and reclaiming the world for what God meant for it to be. And what resulted was almost always the spontaneous and organic spread of Jesus' fame. Even when he told people to not mention what he had done for them, they just couldn't help themselves. And what this shows us is that the spread of Jesus' fame wasn't coerced. It, it wasn't motiva motivated by fear or, or uh, guilt or pressure 
or compulsion from people who were in authority over others. Instead, it was motivated by love. It was motivated by, and, and it came gushing up out of hearts that were being made whole. It came bubbling forth from people who were experiencing the healing of their relationship with God, with others, with themselves, and with creation. So much so that they were finding their very worth in the fame of him who could reverse the effects of the curse. And if you think about it, this is what all of the world's best stories are trying to convey. In, in their own way, and they can't quite get there. But this is what all of the world's best uh, films, all of our favorite books that we love to read, this is what they are trying to show us. They're trying to show us that we have a deep desire for a humble hero who, who can get down on our level, who can look us directly in the eyes and know everything about us, who can heal our deepest wounds, who can show compassion and love us in spite of our worst failures, who can bring beauty out of the ashes of our lives and who can ultimately make everything right again. And I love how C.S. Lewis explains this or describes this characteristic of Jesus in the character Aslan in his series, The Chronicles of Narnia. He gives kind of a, a prophecy, if you will, of Aslan in one of the books, and it goes like this. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You see, this is the fame of Jesus. This is what we're all truly looking for, this is what we long for, what we desire, is the fame of someone who can reverse the curse and make everything right again. But in contrast to how uh, these people in these towns and villages were responding to the fame of Jesus and, and organically and spontaneously spreading that fame, look at how Herod responds to the, the report of Jesus' fame. Herod the Tetrarch, when he, when he hears about Jesus' fame, he turns to his servants and he says, this is, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And if you think about it, that's a pretty strange and even irrational conclusion to draw because even though Matthew tells us here that, that Herod is just now hearing about Jesus, Herod really should have known that John the Baptist and Jesus had lived at the exact same time. So it's really impossible and irrational to think that, that uh, Jesus is some reincarnation of John or that he was John resurrected. In fact, Herod really should have known that, that, John, that Jesus and John the Baptist had lived during the same time period because when Herod had John thrown in prison, Jesus was beginning his ministry in Herod's own territory in Galilee. So why is Herod drawing this strange conclusion? Why is he saying this about John the Baptist when he hears about Jesus' fame? Matthew gives us uh, uh, 
sort of a, a sneak peek, uh, he shed some light on this by giving us a flashback of Herod's previous dealings with John the Baptist. And he says, Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. And then Matthew continues by giving us kind of a creepy story about how Herodias' daughter, who was most likely in her teens, uh, danced for Herod and his uh, rather important guests at Herod's birthday party. And how Herod makes a very rash oath, which provided the perfect opportunity for Herodias to take advantage of, his, of her husband's desire to save face in front of his guests. And therefore, he's pretty much forced to have John put to death. So why is Matthew telling us this strange story? Why is he telling us the story right here in his gospel? Well, he's showing us that, that Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, is a man who is utterly and desperately controlled by fear and he's dominated uh, he's dominated by fear of others he is deathly afraid of being insignificant of losing power and of losing influence over others in his life so much so that it, it dictates almost everything that he does look at what Matthew says about Herod's motives he says that Herod put John in prison for Herodias's sake so this could either mean that Herod was afraid of Herodias' disapproval, or it could mean that he was trying to protect Herodias' image, and therefore, by extension, also protect his own public image. And then Matthew tells us that Herod actually wanted to put John to death, but he feared the people, because the people held John to be someone who spoke on God's behalf. He, they, they held him to be a prophet. And then Matthew tells us that, that Herod makes this very ostentatious oath, probably to show off how generous and powerful he actually is in front of these very important uh, guests at his birthday party. And how, because he makes this oath, He's literally backed into a corner, so much so that he's basically forced to have John killed. And history even tells us that Herod's marriage in the first place to Herodias was a, it was an ambitious grab for more power and more influence. Because Herodias was in a very important uh, family in Israel at the time, the Hasmonean dynasty. So Herod marrying Herodias would have put him in that line. But in order to do that, he had to make a terrible decision. What he had to do was he had to, he had to divorce his first wife, which was also a very strategic and important political alliance with a neighboring country, which would cause his first wife's father to become very angry and declare battle against Herod. And Herod would ultimately lose and be humiliated and, and his forces would be decimated. And if that weren't enough, 
What's more is that Herod, when he married Herodias, wasn't just marrying, wasn't just stealing his brother's wife from uh, his brother and committing adultery. He was actually marrying his own niece because Herodias was actually the granddaughter of Herod's father. So that's where John comes in because he goes, this is incest. This is against God's law. It's disgusting. And just because you're in a position of of authority doesn't mean that what God intended for human relationships doesn't apply to you. You aren't above God's law. And since John was held by the, the people in general to be someone who spoke on behalf of God, and since he was speaking on behalf of God when he said this, Herod felt very threatened by John's influence over the people. So much so that he became paranoid. And he became so paranoid that he was saying, when he heard about Jesus, he said, this is John the Baptist. He's come to steal the the hearts of the people from me and take away my power and my influence. He's come to haunt me, so to speak. So you may be thinking, Herod, that's kind of crazy, man. That doesn't make any sense. And if that's what you're thinking, that's actually 100% right because this is what the foolishness of our resistance to God's, to Jesus' reign in our lives does to us. This is what it does to our hearts. You see, when we hear about Jesus' fame, even though he wants to come in and he wants to restore what has been broken and ravaged by sin in our lives, even though he wants to heal our relationship with God, with, with others, with ourselves and creation, our most natural reaction is resistance. And it's resistance because we, we desperately want to suppress the fact that we are needy in the first place the fact that we need help. So we suppress the fact that we're broken, that we're sinful, and that we're needy because we think that it's just easier to ignore it and to hide from that fact. And the way we hide from it is by trying to get our own significance on our own terms. And so what we do is we spend our life scratching and clawing our way through life, trying to get our significance ultimately from other people and get favor in their eyes. We go horizontally for for what we can only get vertically. So we spend all of our time creating and molding an image and projecting that image of ourselves we, we use our gifts, we use our ambition, we use everything at our disposal, all of our resources to, uh, to make sure that we are found uh, pleasing in others' eyes, that we get, get their approval and that they hold us in high esteem because we think that if we, can get, if we can garner people's trust, if we can have this influence over people in this way, then we can feel significant. But as we saw in Herod, this resistance is utter foolishness because it dupes us into thinking that we are actually in control of our lives. But in all reality, we are the ones that are being controlled. 
we are believing something that our whole culture believes, in fact. We, we are believing that we should have the freedom, and no one should hamper that freedom, to, uh, to dis- d- determine what is right for us so that we can get our worth and our significance on our own terms. And when we go after that freedom, what actually happens is we become imprisoned. We become enslaved. And we destroy our own lives and the lives of those around us. I mean, just look at what it did to Herod's life. He made a mess of his whole country, of his own life, of all of his relationships. He was paranoid. He made a mess of himself. What's more, we know from history that Towards the end of his life, Herod, uh, Herodias prodded Herod to go before the emperor at the time and to make the request that he would no longer be called Herod the Tetrarch, but instead that he would be called Herod the King. And the way that the emperor interpreted this was that it was treason. So he condemned Herod to exile and Herodias. So what we see here is this man who is desperate to prove his worth and his significance. But what results is only alienation, insignificance, obscurity. We do this in our own lives as well, don't we? Maybe not in such grandiose terms, but have you ever thought about why it's so difficult for us to say no to other people sometimes. More often than not, it's because we are afraid of what other people may think about us. So kind of like Herod, we, go, we run around and we try to give everybody what they want so that they can give us their approval. And then what results is typically we make terrible decisions. We can become too needy in our relationships, and this neediness can do two things, really. It can, it can make other people feel like they're being used, and it can blind us to how we might be taken advantage of. Or we, what it can do to us is make us emotionally and physically run ourselves ragged, so much so that we compromise our health and the relationships that are closest to us. And that is why, this is why, it is such utter foolishness to resist Jesus' reign in our lives. Because we're resisting him who can come and reverse all of this in our hearts, in our minds, in our bodies. He's coming in to reverse the curse. But when we resist Jesus, what we're ultimately trying to do is we're trying to be God. And we're trying to run around and make sure everyone, we, we never let anybody down. We're, we're trying our best to withstand the pressure of living up to everyone's expectations all the time. But we were never meant to do that. Only God can live to that standard. Only God can perform in that way all the time perfectly. If we try it, we will be utterly exhausted and, and it's absolutely unsustainable. But when we try to be God in this way, what results is only alienation, insignificance, and obscurity. Instead, our importance was always meant to be derived from God himself. And that's what this, this fame of Jesus is showing us here. It's showing us that 
that it is only when we find our true fulfillment in the fame of him who can reverse the curse that we can truly be free. It's only when we find our fulfillment in Jesus who, who can reverse the curse in our hearts and our minds that we can live truly because he was the only person who came and became the curse for us, as Paul says in Galatians. He was the only person who could bear the consequences for how we have sown utter chaos in our lives in the way that we have, uh, in the lives of the others, in the way that we have sought our significance on our own terms. And he was the only person who could heal the relational rupture brought about by our alienation from God, from others, from ourselves, because he was the only person who was alienated for us. And as a result, he's the only person qualified to make us worthy of the approval that we so crave in the sight of God. So I think it's worth asking ourselves this morning, are we experiencing this approval from Jesus? Are we experiencing this fulfillment in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for us? Or are we being controlled? Are there ways in our, in our lives that we're being controlled by what other people think of us and by fear of insignificance? Because if we live based on his worth, we get a deep and rich fulfillment that frees us. And we can see this clearly in John the Baptist. Look at, we saw earlier that Matthew tells us that John was thrown into prison because he confronted a pretty powerful ruler about his love life. And so what that shows us about John is he wasn't scared of what other people thought of him. Maybe you should have seen that coming with the whole eating grasshoppers in the wilderness thing though. He wasn't afraid of, of what people thought of him. Instead, he had a boldness. He had a confidence that came from knowing who Jesus was, that came from being confident in Jesus who could reverse the effects of the curse in our lives, who could give sight to the blind, who could make the deaf hear, who could make the lame walk. And this confidence and this boldness, it actually freed him up to say a pretty hard thing for the good of someone whose opinion mattered so much that it could land him in prison. In other, in other words, John, John's confidence and, and boldness and his confidence in Jesus and his fulfillment in Jesus freed John up to be more concerned about Herod's good and God's glory than what it might cost him if he said a hard thing. We also find out uh, in history that John was probably in prison for about two years, so not an insignificant amount of time. And it, was a, it wasn't a, a, a nicer prison like the modern prison, not saying that prisons are nice, but it, it was a first century prison. It was, it was hard. <laughs> and Mark shows us something interesting, another detail in this account. He says that Herod feared John, though Herod feared John, Knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, he kept John safe. And then Mark adds, when Herod heard John, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. So what's amazing is that Mark's account here doesn't fit the description of someone that you would 
expect to find languishing and rotting in a first century prison. Instead, instead of seeing John wallowing in self-pity and, and complaining about his circumstances, getting bitter at Herod for throwing him in prison, we see Herod, strangely, experiencing John in such a way that he's greatly perplexed. He's confused, he's confounded. And yet he's gl- he gladly hears John. So what this shows us is that John had a profound fulfillment in Jesus about whom the old hymn says, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And it was this fulfillment that freed John up to live as a display of hope and joy in, in the midst of very difficult circumstances. It was this fulfillment that gave John a, a, a fulfillment and a satisfaction that suffering could not take away from him. And it was this joy, this satisfaction, this fulfillment in Jesus that, that perplexed Herod and gave, made him even glad to listen to John. Now, if you, something that's very applicable about this for us today in, in America's 21st century America is that what John is showing us here is that this is what most Christians, the, the most part of Christians in all of the world have experienced in all of church history. In other words, John is showing us what normal looks like. You see, we as, as Christians in America, we have had a couple of centuries in which we have enjoyed social advantages for identifying with Jesus. We have enjoyed the privilege of, of even having a decent measure of, of, uh, of cultural influence, which gave us great freedom to speak boldly about Jesus in our lives, in our communities. And even to insist on, in society, the ethics that come from following Jesus. And this is a great thing. But maybe you've noticed that the cultural tides are now shifting. And rather than having social advantages for identifying with Jesus, now we experience more and more a social cost. So we have to ask ourselves this morning, in the face of growing social disadvantage, in the face of growing social cost with identifying with Jesus, are we experiencing a fulfillment in Jesus that is freeing us from the fear of what other people think of us? Is our fulfillment in Jesus, is it freeing us from complaining about our loss of cultural influence? Is it giving us a joy that we exude so much so that it perplexes those around us and makes them glad to listen to us even though we may say some things at times that they may disagree with? Because if we have this fulfillment, if we have this joy, we can do what John did in his last days. We can have a fulfillment that is for the fame of Jesus. Look at uh, verse 12. Matthew tells us that the disciples came and they took John's body 
And he didn't even say John's body. He says the body. And they, and he bur- they, they buried it. And then they went and told Jesus. Now, I don't know about you guys. For me, this feels very anticlimactic for Matthew to say about the man that Jesus called the greatest man born of woman. I mean, that's it. He just gets ex- executed. He gets buried. His disciples then just kind of move on and go tell Jesus. Where are the, the, where the accolades? Where's the memorial service? Where's, the, where, where's his legacy? But look at, do you see the beauty in this? Unlike Herod, who was so desperately in prison by his own uh, need to be recognized in life, to his need to have influence and power over people, John on the other hand, is actually free. He's free from needing to be needed. He's free from self-importance. In other words, he's free to point to Jesus' fame and Jesus' worth, even in his death. And if you think about it, it's this kind of freedom that attracts us to people when we see it in them. It's this kind of freedom from needing to prove your worth to people. When we see that in other people, we're, we're really attracted to that person. We want to be around them. We want to be their friend. And that freedom can only come from this deep and profound fulfillment that John had in Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you belong to Christ, are you experiencing a fulfillment in Jesus that is freeing you from self-importance? Are you experiencing a growing uh, freedom, fulfillment in Jesus that is freeing you to, be, uh, a, to have a joy that perplexes those around you and makes them glad to listen to you, even if you may say something hard that they don't disagree with, they don't, they don't agree with? And if you're here this morning and you feel threatened by Jesus' reign in your life, and, you, and you're aware of this knee-jerk reaction to resist Jesus, and you're aware of even the illusion of your own control over your life, please look at Herod and consider the fact that this is utter foolishness. It will only lead to insignificance. It will only lead to alienation. And consider Jesus, who's the only person who can reverse the effects of the curse and who can heal the chaos brought about by our own sin and by the effects of sin in the world. And trust in him. Trust in him who is the only person whose fame can make our heart sing. Go then, earthly fame and treasure. Come disaster, scorn, and pain. In thy service, pain is pleasure. With thy favor, loss is gain. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that you give us a fulfillment in him that can make us free. That can make us free from our self-importance. That can make us free from our fear of what other people think of us. That can even make us free for your fame. We pray, Lord, um, 
for all of the parts of our lives in which we resist you and we try to find our own significance on our own terms. And I pray this morning for anyone who might be here who is resisting you. Father, please allow them to see that this will only lead to alienation and insignificance and let them find their worth in you and Jesus who can reverse the effects of the curse in their hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.